Psalm 119. Psalm 119, let's go there. And we're going to finish this series on spiritual formation that we've been doing. We usually start each year, guys, right? We, we start talking about God and what he wants to do in us and spiritual character, spiritual formation and the word of God and prayer and the spiritual disciplines. We take time to focus on those things because it's a good time to do that. So we've been looking at Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm of all the psalms. It's actually the longest chapter in your Bible and it's poetry. We've been talking about that and it's a poet declaring primarily his love for God the author of the word. And so he is expressing his love and his delight and the value that he finds in God's word. And he's written this really long poem constraining himself, right? By, by working through the Hebrew alphabet with each stanza following a letter from the alphabet and each line from the stanza beginning with that same letter. So it's a, it's a feat of, of significant proportion to extol and describe the Word of God as he has by constraining himself with the form of an acrostic. I read another poem this week that reminded me of this poem that we've been reading to that we've been reading together and studying together. So I'm going to read you this one. This one is actually a song, but it's a poem written by a, a singer-songwriter named Lyle Lovett. Anybody ever hear of Lyle Lovett? So a few of you have heard of Lyle Lovett. Lyle Lovett rocketed to fame because he had a brief marriage, like a few months, I think, to Julia Roberts. Okay, so that's how some of you might know him. But he's been an, uh, an artist, and he's very clever songwriter, and he wrote this song. Now, he's from Texas, so I'll give you an idea of what kind of hat he wears. But this song is called Don't Touch My Hat. All right? It's poetry. You've got to pay attention. Man, you better let go. You can't hold on to what belongs to me and don't belong to you. I caught you looking with your roving eye. So, mister, you don't have to act so surprised. If it's her you want, I don't care about that. You can have my girl, but don't touch my hat. <laughs> I grew up lonesome on the open range, and that cold north wind can make a man feel strange. But my John B. Stetson was my only friend, and we've stuck together through many a woman. So if it's her you want, I don't care about that. You can have my girl, but don't touch my hat. My mama told me, son, to be polite. You take your hat off when you walk inside. But the winds of change, they fill the air, and you can't set your hat down just anywhere. So if you plead not guilty, I'll be the judge, and we don't need no jury to decide because I wear a seven, and you're out of order. Because I can tell from here, you're a seven and a quarter. But if it's her you want, I don't care about that. You can have my girl, but don't touch my hat. No, it never complains, and it never cries, and it looks so good, and it fits just right. But if it's her you want, I don't care about that. You can have my girl, 
but don't touch my hat. It's quiet. Why is he reading that? And what does it have to do with Psalm 119? <laughs> this is a poem. Now, you, you learn a few things about Lyle Lovett. One is he's had some bad relationships. It's one thing we learn. And he's speaking about what has been with him, what he's been able to, to cherish over time. In this case, he's speaking about what he treasures. Or at least the hat is a metaphor for what he treasures. Maybe it represents his independence. It's like this poem in that the, poet, the psalmist, the poet here in Psalm 119, has declared over and over and over again that there's one thing he wouldn't trade for anything in the world. His love for God. And his love for God's word. He would say it this way. You could give me the treasures of this world. But if I have to give up Jesus. Then I don't want him. Or he might say it this way. He might say Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He might say it this way. He might say take the world but give me Jesus. Because he believes he has in Jesus the greatest treasure he could ever have. I wonder if we have that kind of devotion. Well, how would we fill in the blank? You can take my what? You could take my money. You could take what I'm putting my security in. You could take this relationship. You could take my iPhone. You could take my technology. You could take my home, but don't touch my what? Don't touch my Jesus. Don't touch my relationship with Jesus. This is very similar to what the psalmist is praying. He's, he's speaking over and over and over again about the great value he has in his relationship with God, but in God's spoken word to him. This word leads him, guides him, convicts him, helps him, sustains him. And he's speaking about it, how he treasures it over and over and over again. So for today, what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at some of these qualities of God's word and his relationship with God and God's word by looking at various factors or facets of God's word. It's what he has done for us in Psalm 119 is he, he holds up this diamond called God's Word and then he spins it and spins it and spins it and spins it. And we just see so many facets and values of God's Word. So what we're going to do this morning is just look at six different factors of God's Word. So the first one is the foundation factor. So we're talking about qualities of God's Word. The foundation factor. And I take that from verse 73. He says this, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The poet begins this stanza by acknowledging something. He's acknowledging that he owes 
his very existence to God. And not only his very existence, but there is a belief that he has that any good thing he has ever enjoyed has come from God. Sometimes it's good for us to go back to first truths. To go back to foundational truths. This is why we get, so oftentimes we get stuck or we get into trouble in our lives because there, I was just doing this yesterday. There was about five things that were, that were nagging at me. Do you know this experience? Do you know this? Do you guys have enough troubles in life that they nag at you? They follow you around during the day? You might not even be able to articulate exactly what they are, but there's something that's hanging over you. Have you ever had this experience? You have. That's what it means to be human. So I was, I was um, Amy said, let's take a walk. And I didn't want to take a walk. Because I was dealing with some things that were weighing on me. I was looking ahead at my week and my weekend, and I was looking at the amount of tasks I had to do and the amount of week I had. And I didn't know how I was going to do that. I was under pressure. And if I told you what they were, you might say, Kenny, you don't even know what pressure is. You want to you listen to pressure? Listen to what I'm going through. And no doubt some of you are going through Harder things than I'm going through. But I was taking a walk and talking with Amy. And that's, listen, one thing you should do if your spouse ever says to you, or if a friend, if you're not married, if they ever say, let's go take a walk, and, and you're going through something, don't say no. Say yes. There's something about being outside, being in God's creation that starts to put things in perspective. It's magical. So we went, so we took this walk. And while we were walking, I started sharing what was nagging at me, what was overwhelming. I was just, putting, I was just letting them come out of my, my, my heart and out of my mouth. And then what I did was I started to speak to those things first truths, foundational truths. I started to say something like this, God, life is bigger then these things that, that are going to pass. These things, are, I'm going to get through this. And you have made me, and you made me for a relationship with you, but I had rebelled against you, and you saved me by the blood of Jesus. I have a relationship with you now, and no one and no thing can ever take that from me, which means I'm going to be with you forever. I started speaking these foundational truths to these situational truths, and it started to give me perspective. Foundational truths are hugely important to us as we try to navigate through this life. Sometimes you need someone to restate the obvious to you. You need someone to just tell you, hey, don't forget this is true about you. Don't forget that your sins are forgiven. Don't forget that God's prepared a place for you. Don't forget that God is in this. 
don't forget that God has, has orchestrated these circumstances just as they are. Someone, I was at the gym the other day and someone said something that I liked. He said something like, don't look at things like this. He was talking to another guy in the gym and he said, don't look at things like this. Like, what is, what is happening to me? Look at it like this. What is happening for me? So we're looking at things as an opportunity to rely on the Spirit of God and to trust Him. Church, do we, friends, do we really believe that God's in control of all things? Do you really believe that? Sometimes you don't act like it. Sometimes I don't act like it. But if we really believe that He's good and He's full of grace and mercy and He's powerful and sovereign over all things, then every challenge is an opportunity, can be reinterpreted as an opportunity to rely on the Holy Spirit to direct us and guide us and to do in our lives what we could never do for ourselves because we would never go there. It's foundational. It's the foundational factor of the Word. These are truths that are important, but they fade from our minds. This is why we say regularly around here, we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You say, every day? I don't need the gospel anymore. The gospel is what I, I prayed. I asked Jesus into my heart. He saved me. I don't need the gospel anymore. That's for people who aren't Christians. No. We need the gospel. Every moment of every day, the grace that saves us is the grace that sustains us. And we need to remind ourselves of these obvious truths. Have you ever, have you ever done that? Like, you'll see this happen occasionally where your spouse, like in this case, Amy will tell me something that's just foundational. She'll just restate the obvious, and it doesn't help me. It's like, ah, thanks. And we'll just keep walking. And then I'll go to Fight Club with like J. Ross, and he'll say the same thing. And I'll come home and I'll be like, you know what? I feel such relief. Because you know what Jairus told me? He told me that Jesus died to save me. And I just feel such relief. So thankful for him. And Amy will be like. We need to restate the obvious over and over. The foundational truths of our salvation, we need to say them to ourselves and to one another over and over and over and over and over and over and over again until Jesus comes back or, or, or we rise to meet him in the skies after we've died and join him in heaven, right? All right, let's move on to the next one. The foundation factor. Let's look at the fellowship factor. The fellowship factor. He says this in verse 74. Those who fear you. Look at the track this one. Because this one really perplexed me that he would say this. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. That strikes me as odd. Let's put it in context. When I show up to missional community this week, that's our small groups, when I sh show up to missional community, those who love you will see me and rejoice. <laughs> that seems odd. That seems arrogant. Those who fear you will see me and rejoice. What is he talking about? 
Well, let's look at, let's look at the, let's finish the clause. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because, so now we're going to get the reason, because I have, and the emphasis isn't on, uh, the emphasis isn't on the eye, but he says, because I have hoped in your word. Why are people rejoicing when they see him? Because he is someone that is hoping in Jesus. And that is the intended effect of gospel community. This is why we are not called to live our Christian life in isolation from one another, which so many Christians try to do. We try to live in isolation. We try to live in, we try to, we show up even at things like small group and Bible study. We put our, we came to church today and we put our Christian mask on and we act like we got everything all together. And we don't actually share the ways in which we're hurting and the ways in which we're trying to trust Jesus. And so no one can benefit from their experience with you as being someone who is hoping in God's word even though you're going through a tough time. This is why gospel community is so important. Some of us don't go to a small group, we don't participate, and the whole group is missing out on the rejoicing that would happen if you showed up. And, and, and you're missing out because someone else is going to walk through the door and you're going to see them and you're going to hear them speak. They're going to speak some word of truth and it's going to have the encouragement on, on, on your soul that you needed, that God prepared for you. It's the fellowship factor of, of sitting together and, and trying to love Jesus in the context of a group of people that are in, living in gospel community. What would it look like for us to find fellowship with others over God's word? What would that look like in our lives? What would that look like for you to, to ensure that you're actually experiencing real fellowship with people in the context of community? The fellowship factor. Number three, the authority factor. Talking about God's Word and these qualities of God's Word. The foundation factor, the fellowship factor, the authority factor. Look at verse 76, 77, 78, and 79. You will see something in common with all four of those verses. Somebody shout it out. It's not a trick question. They all start with the same word. Let. Told you it wasn't a trick question. Let your steadfast love comfort me. Let your mercy come to me. Let the insolent be put to shame. Let those who fear you turn to me. Let, 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 let. He's, he's praying, right? He's singing to God. He's praying to God. And he's saying to God, let, 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 let. So I went to my dictionary to make sure I understood what the word let meant. Here's what it doesn't mean. Don't prevent don't forbid. Allow. Permit. Authorize. He's praying to God 
because he believes God has the ability to do something with the things he's asking of him. Wouldn't it? It, it makes no sense to, to make requests of someone who has no ability to do what you're asking of them. God has authority. How often do we access the authority that we have because we come through Jesus, his son, who made a way for us? How useless it would be to ask somebody something if they had no authority to do anything about it. You ever sometimes get on, the, you get on customer support for something? And you spill, you're like, you, you, you got this problem, you're trying to get some money back or something like that. Like trying to get some money back from some of these phone companies and stuff. You get on the phone, you call the customer service, and you prepare your case. Have you ever done this? Like, I got it, I got it all, I've got it all written out. And then I, they answer the phone and I give it to them. And then they say, uh, sir, you're, you're talking to the wrong department. They can't help me. They, they don't have any authority to help me with the situation. Sometimes we do that. Do you remember who you're talking to when you pray? When I was, it's so crazy that Siri can hear me up here. When I, was in, when I joined the, the Air Force, when I went through boot camp, uh, eight weeks, one of the things they try to do for this first eight weeks is they really try to rattle you. They try to, to determine whether you're going to make it or not. So they do these mind games on you. And, and one of the things they made you do, it was a dreaded assignment. I know I've shared this, some form of this in illustrations before, but they did this. It was traumatic. That's why. It was this traumatic moment. But you had to serve as a dorm guard. So in your dorm, you were on a, you were on a flight. It was about 60 guys all in this same floor together going through boot camp together. And they created this testing scenario where the only way anyone from the outside could get into that dorm, could get into the big thick door, the only way they could get in there is if one of us opened it. It's the only way. And so they made us serve as dorm guards. And then these military training instructors had themselves a good time. Because there was only one thing they needed to show us to get in. Their authority to access badge. They had to show us that they had authority to enter the room. That's all they had to do. But what they did was they gave you fakes. They gave you, they gave you all kinds of excuses. They gave you all kinds of reasons why you should let them in there. And they wanted to see if you'd crack under the pressure and let them in. And if you did let them in, when they didn't show you their authority badge, then you got what was re referred to as recycled. That was when you had already accomplished a certain amount of training, and you go back to the beginning. I lived in traumatic fear of being recycled. And so it was my night, guarding dorm guard, dorm B5. I remember it. My heart is starting to palpitate right now because I had, I had a military training instructor who must have decided on that particular day early in the morning that he had a lot of time on his hand because he was going to figure out what I was made of.
And so they have this little window. It's about this big. So that's the window through the door. And so I heard a door guy. And I went running over. And I stood at attention. And I looked out that little window and I said, Sir, dorm guard, dorm B5, may I help you? May I see your authority to enter, access badge, or military ID card? See, I remember. This was 30 years ago, guys. I remember this. And I stood there and he said, let me in. Sir, may I see your authority to enter, access badge, or military ID card? Let me in, dorm guard. And if you don't let me in in a second, when I get in there, I'm going to jump down into your throat and rip your heart out. (laughs) Sir, may I see your authority to enter, access badge, or military ID card? Then he started screaming, up, jumping up and down, outside in that window, like up in my face in that window. And this went on, like, it, guys, I'm telling you, I'm getting nervous just sitting up here. I thought for sure you have been recycled all the way back. Like, you're going back home, and then they're going to bring you back after that. And so finally, he took out his authority to enter badge, and he slammed it up against the window and said, there, when I get in there, you're mine. And so I leaned on the door, and I opened it, and I waited for him to come in and rip my heart out. And he just walked through the door and said, good job, doing guard." A lot of us have been letting into the doorway of our lives those people and things that have no authority to be there. They haven't shown their authority to enter or access badge. They have no authority. We have been tricked or deceived or we thought there was a better option on the other side of the door than God, and we let those things, and we let these people into our lives, even though they have no authority to be there. And when that happens, you know what happens. Our lives get messed up. The Word of God, Jesus, is our authority. And sometimes Jesus is knocking on the door once into our hearts, once into our lives. But we keep him on the porch while we allow all sorts of other things into our lives to take his place. What would it look like if the word of God and Jesus were really the primary authority of your life? What would it look like if we allowed God access into our hearts because he has the authority? Once we were at the hospital, we have four kids. We, were, we took one of them to the hospital for an emergency for some reason. I can't remember what it was. But when we were filling out, they were registering us. They were getting us checked into the hospital. The lady that was interviewing us or, or writing down our information said, what do you do for a living, sir? And I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, you got direct connect. 
And I said, I do. And you can have it too. You don't have to be a pastor to have direct connect. All you have to do is have a relationship with Jesus who makes a way for us to get to the Father where we have direct connect 24-7. We have access to God through Jesus. We, we have his authority in our lives. We have access to him 24-7. What are you going through right now? Are you going to God? Or are you letting something else into your life that's actually messing your life up even more because you won't let God do what he wants to do? He has authority. Does, is he, does he have authority in your life? What would it look like to functionally give him more? That was the third factor, the authority factor. The fourth factor, the delight factor. The delight factor. Look at verses 76 and 77. Let your steadfast love. That's an incredible word used over and over again by the Old Testament writers. His hesed, his steadfast love. Let that comfort me according to your promise. And then he says, let your mercy come to me that I, might, that I may live for your law is my what, church? My delight. He's saying that God and God's word are his delight. This is the delight factor. This is what Lyle Lovett's talking about. He's saying, you can have all these other things. You can even have my girl, but don't touch my hat. He's telling you what he treasures most. What do we say? Do we say to all these other things that would compete for our affections? No, to the side, to the side. We keep you to the side. We push these things to the side. We, we don't believe that we have anything better than Jesus. So Jesus has front seat in our lives. Jesus has, has the primary position in our lives. We form our lives, that he's the controlling center of our lives because we treasure him more than we treasure anything or everything. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Think about your relationship with Jesus, which is in indicated or illustrated in your relationship with God's Word. What's your relationship with God's Word? It's harder now to talk about this because it used to be, even 20 years ago, that you might have had one Bible that you used over and over again, you carried with you. But now we have Bibles everywhere. We've got our phones. We've got our iPads with us. We've got our computers. We're always, we can access a Bible wherever we want. And that's great. That's an incredible privilege. But I think one of the downsides of that is that we don't have like the Bible that we carry with us. I remember when the ESV came out, it was about 20 years ago, the English Standard Version, and it's a really good translation that was uh, backed by a lot of really good scholarship, but at, but at the time we were using the NIV, which is a good translation as well, but it's a different kind of translation. It's not literal. It's not word for word. It's called a dynamic equivalent. It's uh, for another day. But I had my NIV, and guys, I have it still on a shelf in my house, but my NIV, it was a Bible that was given to me when I, when I started to follow Jesus, and I, it, was the, it was my Bible. That was my Bible. I didn't have a phone that had the Bible on it. I carried that NIV. It was thin and tan, and it was all, pages were falling out of it. It was all marked up. Tear stains in it. I mean, I could show you. I knew if I showed up at a small group I, and I thought of something for you that I wanted to share from God's Word, I could find things based on where they were in the book and in their placement on the page. I knew 
that Bible. And I remember when I got my new ESV and I laid it next to my NIV and I thought, how can I put this thing away? This book knows me. I know it. I have a relationship with God that's come to me through this book. What's your relationship with God's Word? What would your Bible or your Bible app tell us about you? We said a couple weeks ago that the strongest indicator of your love for God is your love for His Word. That's the delight factor. What would it look like if we took more delight in God's Word and in His law? And we're like the poet and the psalmist who said, your law is my delight. Number five, the utility factor. The utility factor. That's verse 78. Look at what he says there. He says, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. He's chewing on God's word day and night and throughout the day. Not just because it's a treasure. You know, you could have a treasure something that's really valuable, but you don't access on a daily basis, right? You can have something that's worth a lot, but you haven't seen it in a while. You haven't touched it in a while. I know people that are owners of things, but not users of things. Have you ever met someone like this? I have a, I have a relative that has really nice cars. He buys them, and then he puts them in the garage, and he never drives them, ever. He just likes to have it. He owns it. It's a treasure to him, but it's not useful to him. And there's nothing wrong with that. You, you can do that if you want. But it doesn't have utility. The Bible is like this precious gift. It's the greatest treasure because it indicates our relationship with Jesus, which nobody could ever give us anything better than that. So we have the, the word that's our treasure, but it's more than that. It has this utilitarian value, right? You might say one of, one of its rich, richest attributes is its usefulness to you day in and day out. So there's a whole community out there called EDC. Have you guys heard of this? Everyday carry. I had an everyday carry. I'm an everyday carry person. And there was one in the first service. EDC is like this group of people. It's crazy. There's, there's, a, there's an Instagram group for everybody. Okay, the EDC people are these people that take a picture of everything that they, live, they have to have with them every day. So every day carry. I'll lay it out. My pen. My Burt's Bees. handkerchief, my iPhone. So people will actually do this kind of stuff. They set it all out real, real artistically. I've never done it. But you set it out, and then you snap a photo of it. That's your everyday carry. This is the stuff that you can't, you can't go through your day with because you're, you're constantly checking your pockets. You're like, what am, where, what, how would I live without this? Got my Burt's Bees in there. I got my pen. My pen's got to go right in there like that. My knife. I've got to have my knife on right there. If I don't have it, I'm like constantly checking because I need it. I'm looking for this. I never even use it. I just put it in there. <laughs> but it's part of my 
everyday carrying my phone. You know what that's like. You leave your phone at home. Oh, my goodness. That's a day of misery. It's sad, isn't it? It's because these things have a utilitarian factor. These things may not cost much, but they have value in their everyday usefulness. So I'm asking you, Christian, does the Bible have, and is it part of your everyday carry? Is it, does it have utilitarian value, utility for you every single day? Can you get through a day without your Bible? That's the utility factor. A Christian who can get through the day without his Bible is like a soldier without a sword, or a soldier without a machine gun, like a carpenter without a hammer, like an Uber driver who doesn't own a car, like a young mother without her diaper bag, like a lacrosse player with no stick, like a violinist without a bow, like an architect without a ruler, like a poet without a pen. You're trying to get through life without the thing that you need most. You're trying to do your job without accessing what you need. Does, what would it look like if the Bible played more of a utility role in your life? What would it look like if your Bible was part of your everyday carry? Like, I can't live with this. I can't live without God's word to me. Let me ask the band to return and we'll hit the final factor. The final factor, we've hit, what have we said so far? We've talked about the, well, what do I, I got to go back. The f- foundational factor, the fellowship factor, the authority factor, the delight factor, the utility factor, and I'll end with what I'll call the evangelism factor. The evangelism factor, which we use the language of, of mission a lot around here, and evangelism is certainly part of mission. Mission is bigger, though, than just evangelism. But when I talk about evangelism, I'm talking about sharing the gospel. Evangel means gospel. It means good news. And so to do evangelism is to share the good news with people, to spread the fame of Jesus. That's what evangelism is. And we can be uncomfortable with it. But look at what he says in verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. Part of his life calling is to spread the good news about God. I read a really powerful story this week that really got me thinking about this. And I think it'll get you thinking as well. It really, it had an effect on me. It actually, my wife and I, I read it to Amy and It moved me to tears. It's a story in a a little devotional that I read called Table Talk, but it's written by a guy named Tim Kesey. He's the director of a missions organization. And he tells this story. Listen to some of it. I'll be paraphrasing it. But he tells the story of Saeed. He says, Saeed grew up in a small village in the Atlas Mountains of North Africa. The mosque was at the center of their rhythm and life for every day. It was at the center of the mud brick homes that they lived in. For more than 12 centuries, this is how these people had lived. No church, never met a Christian or heard of Christ. Saeed's first glimpse of the light was through a Christian satellite television. 
So he heard something in his own language being broadcast over and over again. And he was listening to the speaker who kept reciting the same words over and over again that were shaking his world. They were startling him. The words in English were this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That shook him. He didn't know what to do with that. He didn't know what it meant. Eight years passed before Saeed ever got a Bible and met a Christian face to face. And he felt like when someone showed him a Bible and gave him a Bible that he was in a life and death struggle, which is true, the Bible or the Koran. He used to lay them both next to one another. And then he cried out to God, show me which one is true. Over time, he writes the story that he found himself drawn more and more to the Jesus of the Bible than the Muhammad of the Quran. He was so affected that he decided that he heard about a, a house church that was meeting in secret. And he went there, and he was deeply affected by the fellowship. These are the factors we were just talking about. They were sitting in, in a small group with their Bibles open, reading them and talking about what God was saying to them in it. And then they were singing hymns. And he was so overwhelmed at the joyful singing and this experience of fellowship that he had with them. That one Sunday, he stood up during the meeting. I love this. Nobody planned this in the liturgy. I wish that some of this would happen more in our church. People would just stand up and do this. He just stood up. And he said... Jesus is the only Savior of the world, and He is my Savior. On the day He was baptized, He sent a group message to everyone in His phone contact list, and it said simply, Walit Masihi. I became a Christian, which in his country was like asking to be killed. But Saeed didn't have a death wish. Instead, this writer says, he had a living hope. It's hard to threaten a man who knows he will now live forever. Amen? Believing faith, and here's the point, believing faith results in a spoken faith. So, guys, we should be challenged by this. If, our, if we are people that treasure the good news, but it never comes out of our mouth to those who don't know Jesus, that should cause us to question whether we really treasure it as good news or not. Listen, if Saeed can say, today I became a Christian, you should be able to say that in a country where you're free to say it. How is it that Saeed might be actually a better evangelist 
a braver, a more courageous evangelist than some of us who, ha- who live in a country where we're free to say, I follow Jesus. I'd like to introduce you to him. Would you like to read the Bible with me? It's good news. So when I talk about the evangelism factor, I'm talking about the Word of God. We're treasuring it as God's Word and all that He's spoken in His Gospel and, and that we want to share that with other people. We want other people to know Jesus. What if, what if there is another Saeed somewhere across the ocean who is having this encounter with God and wondering if Jesus is true, and waiting to meet Ben and Jay Hartzell, who may not be there for a while. Or maybe one of us. Maybe there's someone else that we're supposed to send because God's called you to go meet a Saeed face-to-face and share the gospel so that his eternity is changed. That's the evangelism factor. What would it look like, guys, if our lives, if these qualities of the Scripture and and which are indicative of our relationship with God, what would it look like if we took steps so that the Bible did these things in our lives? It's a good question, isn't it? 